Hey everyone, uh, thanks for attending our talk. Uh, I know it's pretty late in the day. You guys got some gambling to do, some partying to do. Um, so my name is Jason. Um, this is my close friend and colleague on this project, Apar Sidwani. And uh, we also work on this project with Leo Tam. Um, this was originally a project for a class um, at Stanford University. So we're both PhD students there and I'm in medical imaging and machine learning there and Apar works on uh, machine learning and finance. Um, and so this was a project that we worked with uh, professors Jeff Ullman and Andreas Pepke from the computer science department there. And we also uh, were in contact with a ophthalmologist there um, whose name is Robert Chang. And so this project is about trying to take images of um, the eye and we're trying to play the role of a radiologist and we're gonna use techniques from deep learning to automatically uh, grade the severity of a disease um, in these images of the eye. So the particular disease we're looking at is called diabetic retinopathy. And this is uh, a disease of the eye which affects up close to 50% of diabetics across the world. And this is um, almost 100 million people across the world. And um, a lot of these people are you know, underserved. They're not actually, they can't afford the healthcare and they can't afford to see an ophthalmologist. And so what happens is a lot of these people fall through the cracks and there's a need for um, automated screening tools to allow people go in for screening and to allow for um, more cheaper reviewing of these images so that you don't always have to go to an ophthalmologist who has to spend all, um, up to five minutes reviewing an image um, at some you know, higher amount of cost. And so what this also allows you to do is to diagnose the disease uh, earlier in the, in the disease process, and that means that you can intervene right when the disease is starting to lead to, to blindness. And that means that you can deliver more effective care. And so having an automated system to be able to grade and understand these images is really critical to trying to take um, the care for diabetic retinopathy to the next level where we can really closely monitor the stage of the disease uh, throughout the lifespan of the subject. Um, so the, the problem at hand here is to take a fundus image. So the fundus is just what we call the back of the eye. So this includes the retina, your optic nerve, and things like that. And we're taking an image of that using a special camera. And I'll show you an image on the next slide of that. And so once we have this image, we want to figure out how severe is the disease on this image. And so the hallmarks of the disease are things like bleeds and other things that appear in the retina. And so you want to grade these images on a scale from zero to four where zero is normal and four is severe. And this is a classification problem, and more specifically, it's an ordinal classification problem, and it's important to treat um, uh, errors between making a mistake between, say, you know, say the true person is a, is a normal and you say he's a four, that's obviously a really bad mistake. But if you say he's a one, that's a, an okay mistake. So some of the problems that we face in this um, project was how to encode that sort of uh, that sort of loss function into, into training the network. And um, so the performance metric we use is something called quadratic weighted kappa, and this is something that penalizes greater mistakes. So if you have a, a mistake of a difference of four, then you're uh, gonna be squaring the, the penalty associated with that. And so here are examples of the images that are uh, acquired. And so these are fundus images acquired with a fundus camera. And you can see uh, on the left is, a, is an example of a normal eye. And you can see this bright red, uh, sorry, bright circle, bright white circle on the right side of the image is where the optic nerve uh, attaches to your, uh, to your retina. And so 
from this radiates a bunch of blood vessels. So you can see these red structures uh, curving around the eye, and these are the blood vessels that feed blood to your retina. And the dark thing in the center is your fovea, so that's where all your cones are, where you have your focused vision, which you use to read and look at things. Um, and so what happens with di diabetic retinopathy is if you have diabetes, you have an elevated glucose level in your, in your blood. And this causes the vessels, um, the walls of your blood vessels to thin. And sometimes they can actually crack and bleed. This leads to um, hemorrhages into your retina. And so you can see on the right image, which is a, an example of a severe uh, patient, um, you can see that there's a bunch of red blotches in the image. And these are essentially blood that has leaked out from the the vessels and uh, deposited themselves onto the retina. And so once they start to encroach on the, the dark metal spot, the fovea, um, that's when you can start seeing these you know, black spots in your vision and you eventually become blind if they affect it uh, to a severe level. Um, so our data comes from a Kaggle competition, um, and this was a competition funded by the California Healthcare Foundation as well as IPACS. And our data consists of 35,000 training images and 54,000 test images. So the test set is quite a bit bigger, and this is often common in medical uh, medical problems because you're trying to say that you have an algorithm that generalizes to a much larger population than your training set. Um, interestingly, this data set, uh, this data is very high resolution compared to other computer vision tasks, and uh, on the order of something like four megapixels. Um, so that's the first challenge challenge we face with with uh, this problem. Was trying to tackle this problem. So, in something like uh, an ImageNet uh, problem challenge, which is uh, a general computer vision challenge that they run every year, where they're trying to recognize general objects, things like cats, dogs, planes, cars, things like that. And what they're using, what they're using there, is kind of like thumbnail images of what the what the object is. Um, and so, a lot of the techniques that we're using come from things that are architectures and techniques that have been learned in that. Um, that challenge, and we're trying to apply them to this problem here. And so um, the first challenge we face is how do we adapt these techniques to high resolution? Um, so here are just a, a bunch of thumbnails showing uh, the various different classes of severity of the disease here. And so this is just to, to highlight the point that we, we really do need the high resolution images. So you can kind of see like zero, one, and 2 kind of look similar to each other. Might be hard to see on these images. Um, so you can't really tell the difference between uh, zero through two. They all kind of look the same when you're looking at um, low resolution images. And then at threes and fours, you can see there's kind of like a, a, a yellow spot you can see above the, the fovea, the dark spot. That's, a, that's actually a fat deposit. And um, in, the, in the four, you can see there's kind of like a ashen kind of gray um, things. And those are actually scars from treatment. So you can kind of see, differentiate the more severe forms of the disease uh, that is classes threes and fours, but from zero to two, you really need the high-res data to, to see what's going on. Um, right, so here, here's, these are the sorts of lesions that are associated with the disease. So um, the, the, the blood vessel will crack and things like fat will deposit into the, into the retina. These are called the exudates or the yellow spots that you see. And then there's also hemorrhages, which are bleeds or, um, that then clot and form into, uh, form into blotches on the on the retina. Um, so there's a bunch of criteria associated with how you actually grade these things, these images. And we don't specifically encode these in the, in the, in the training procedure, but we want the uh, algorithm to learn what these, uh, these guidelines are from just from the data itself. 
And so, as with any data set, there's, it's subject to um, how, how well it was labeled. And there is some disagreement among, amongst doctors about how to create these images, even though there were guidelines here. Some of these are kind of vague, and it's some of the decisions made by doctors varies. And so we spoke to Robert Chang, who was the doctor that we worked with on this project, and he uh, confirmed some of the things that we pointed out, like, hey, this actually looks like, you know, more severe than what it was labeled. And then he was like, yeah, that's actually true. So there's actually definitely problems with the data. And um, we sort of have to live with it um, at this stage. Um, also, there, so this image, this data set also has a lot of artifacts associated with um, the images. And these are, um, so what happens is when the, the patient comes in, he'll get these photos taken with a camera. And so you have all the sorts of artifacts related with uh, photography. So things like lens flare, things like, um, so they, you have to use a flash. So things like uh, reflections off the, the front of the eye. Um, so those leads to like the haloing effects that you kind of see. And see the, so these are all sorts of variances in the image that the, the network has to learn to be robust to. And that's what makes this challenge especially, uh, especially difficult compared to um, maybe literature methods that in this space where they were using very pristine images and using standard image processing techniques to try to uh, do diagnosis. Um, right, so our performance metric is something called quadratic weighted kappa, and this is something that has a squared penalty loss. So for example, if the true class of an image is uh, one, um, then if we predict that it's one, then we don't have any penalty associated with that. If we predict that it's a two, then there's um, a, a penalty of one. If we predict that it's a three, then it's a penalty of two squared, which is four and so on and so on uh, as you go, as you predict uh, zero or four. Um, so this is uh, one of the main challenges here for the problem. How do we encode this sort of squared error uh, um, into training the network? Um, another big problem that we faced was, and this is also common in the medical space, was um, the severe class imbalance associated with having way too many normals. So most people are normal and most people will have good eyes. And so over 70% of our data is actually um, in the zero class. And so if you sort of try, try to train the network naively um, uh, without consideration of, of this class imbalance, it sort of tries to just predict all zeros because if you predict all zeros, you have 70% accuracy just by that. And obviously that's not really helpful in any way. Um, uh, also common in medical data sets is that you have too few examples. So in this case, you saw that for the more severe forms of the disease, threes and fours, uh, we only have, um, we have less than 1,000 images, something like 600 to, seven, 700, to 600 to 700 images. 700 images. Um, and so, yeah, so what we'll do here is try to take advantage of using th techniques like uh, transfer learning to sort of skirt the issue of our limited data. Um, so we did explore conventional techniques where you sort of hand design a set, bunch of features. So you wanna, in these images, the th important things are things like trying to identify where the vessels are because the, um, the bleeds and stuff usually typically uh, are close to the vessels because that's where they originate from. And then um, you wanna find out where the, the bright spots are because those could be fat deposits, or, but that could also be the optic disc. So these are the sorts of features that you try to learn from and you can build um, s simple models like SVM from those features. And um, Generally, uh, it didn't work very well. Um, so we moved on to more, uh, I guess, modern approaches with deep learning and convolutional neural networks. Um, so in order to feed data to a, a convolutional neural, neural network, um, you need to, well, one thing you can do is uh, to try to normalize the data as much as you can beforehand. And so 
this is instead of like trying to have the network learn some of these variances, you can try to uh, align or normalize out these variances beforehand. So you can sort of use human knowledge to uh, prevent, so that you don't have to rely on the network to learn these more easier parts of the things that you can account for yourself. And so specifically, we do something called registration. So this is like, if you have an image, um, what happens is you have like a circle in this image, and that's where the, f the fundus is. And this can be anywhere inside you know, this black square of the image. And so we have to find where that is and sort of center them across all, our, all the data that we have. And so we do that with uh, a simple image processing technique called top circles, which just uh, essentially gives you the center and radius of the circle. And then we can then uh, shift the circle across all the images so that they're all lying on top of each other at the same spot. Um, we also do color correction. So for different pe people of different races, they'll have different color retinas. So um, I think this is probably a Caucasian person. And so we can we sort of try to correct for that a little bit as much as we can um, so that they're closer in hue um, between different people. Um, we also do standard uh, normalization to uh, zero mean and unit variance, um, just so that it's uh, well, more uh, well suited for processing by a convolutional neural network. So what are convnets uh, or convolutional neural networks? So a convnet is basically one branch of, um, of uh, deep learning or neural network architectures. And so there's many different types of, of convolutional neural network architectures and these are particularly well suited for vision tasks. And so this, since this is a vision, vision task, this is um, the, the, the kind of architecture that we pursued for um, this problem. And so there, most of the, the sorts of architectures for these come from the ImageNet challenge. And so you may have heard of things like ResNet or GoogleNet or AlexNet um, way back in the day in 2012. And um, so the, these are sort of, um, the ones, the hallmark networks that have been very successful for large-scale image recognition challenges where you're trying to identify a thousand different objects from each other. And so these data sets are things on the order of one, uh, one million images. And so because of that, they can train a lot more, for, they can have models that are a lot larger and deeper than um, with a smaller data set. And so those models can be up to like 100 million parameters in size. Um, so in our case, we had to take into consideration how much smaller our data was that is on the order of you know, tens of thousands, 50,000 to 100,000 images, um, if you take the training data, as, uh, the test data as well. But anyway, um, so we use something called uh, the Network and Network Architecture, which was published by Minlin in 2014. And this is an architecture that has a much reduced set of parameters to learn, and we reduce it even further for our problem. And the key thing here is that it avoids something called fully connected layers, which uh, leads to, a, is generally a large percentage of what you have to learn in uh, traditional networks like AlexNet. And so, so what we do is we sort of take the, the base uh, lower layers of the, the network and we keep the, that structure and we modify this higher level structure so that it's a, adapted to a five class classification problem as opposed to a thousand class classification problem. Um, right, so as, as I was saying before, data is, Data is the problem here. So we have so little data that um, we can't really train the whole network by itself because there's still so many parameters, 2.2 million parameters for you know 35,000 images that we have examples of. And so what we can do is we can um, take the knowledge learned from another problem like ImageNet and transfer learn it, which is just means we take 
literally the numbers that are associated, that were learned in that problem and carry it over to this problem. And we use that as an initialization point for the network. And so um, a lot of the, the heur heuristic reasoning for this is because in most vision tasks, the lower level features are associated with sort of basic image understanding. So things like trying to find the edges in an image, image, trying to identify gradients in the image, things like that. So these are all very low level uh, image processing tasks. And so these are effectively thought to be transferable across many different problems. And so we also, uh, so similarly for that reason, because those, those lower level features are fairly consistent, we don't learn them, or we, use, we don't adjust them very much. We use a variable learning rate across the network. Uh, similarly, we um, try to uh, use other deep learning tricks like dropout and early stopping as well as data augmentation um, to combat this uh, problem of overfitting because we have so many parameters and uh, reduce the amount of data. So, sorry. <laughs> Um, so, right, so what we wanted to do is to, we want to work on the high-resolution images, and that's because we know that the, the disease is about, is about finding these small little bleeds in the image. And, but there are other things that we can do before we try to tackle the, the higher-resolution images, which require more resources. And so this project is kind of like, so when, when we did this project, we were given $3,000 in credits for the class from the AWS Educate program. And so this project is all about how do you budget that in a, in a very effective manner so that you can deep, do deep learning um, in as cost-effective manner as possible. And so what we, our idea was we wanted to strategize as, as much as we could at low resolution. Um, and so what we realized was that there are parts of the problem that we can model at low resolution before we, we try to tackle the higher resolution stuff. And so this is things like trying to accurately model the performance metrics. So we want to use a mean squared error loss function, ideally, because this is more accurately models the quadratic weighted kappa performance metric that we're trying to target. And there's, we can also deal with the issue of trying to model the statistics of the population, um, in particular, the class imbalance problem that is the, the, the dominance of zeros in our, in our data set. And so we can, we're, our idea was, we, we can train low resolution really fast and really cheaply on AWS. And we can then figure, explore a bunch of different ideas of, about how to you know, tackle these problems, modeling the, the performance and modeling the statistics. And then once we found the correct solution at low resolution, then we can just straightly apply this methodo the methodology we learned or the strategy we learned to the high res. And so in this way, we kind of we have a cost-effective solution to, to figure out the best way to, uh, to train the high resolution images. Um, so what we do is we start out with um, the uh, we start out with the the full network and we take the lower layers and we just freeze them entirely. We don't do anything with them. We just leave them uh, as they are. And so we're essentially just trying to learn three little small convolution layers on top of all of the features learn uh, all the features that are carried over from ImageNet. Um, and so what we did was we tried to start off with you know, the thing closest to the problem that we're trying to solve. We want a quadratic error with mean squared error, and we want a uh, sampling distribution that matches the true, di the true distribution of the population. And this doesn't learn at all. Uh, it tries to break all zeros. Um, similarly, for if you change the sampling rate, or sampling so that it's even across all the classes, it doesn't do anything as well. And it's actually been shown that using a mean squared error loss function is, is a Ill an ill-posed problem for training these sorts of networks. Um, so 
a more traditional loss function to use in object recognition is something called negative log likelihood. And this is a, a penalty that has no additional penalty associated with different classes. So if you say a zero is a four, that's the same as saying a zero is a one. It doesn't matter to it. And this is, it makes sense for things like you know, cats versus dogs or planes versus cats and stuff. Any, any, any mistake is all the same. It's all, you know, I don't really know how to distinguish between which, which is a worse mistake or what. But um, uh, so in this case, it's not, it doesn't quite model the problem we want, but it is able to learn something here. It does reach a kappa of 0 0.1 instead of 0. And, and this is with the true sampling distribution. Um, so we then change the sampling distribution so that it's even across all the classes, so that you know, it's able to get a flavor of all the different classes, able to learn something about the threes and fours, even though we don't have too many of them otherwise. And so it is able to get some, th somewhere, some progress there with a capital of, of 0.29. Okay, so once we're at that stage, then uh, we say, okay, okay, let's, we've learned these top la layers, these small top layers a bit. Now let's take the, the whole bottom bottom stack of the network and do something with them. So we apply a really low learning rate to them, one one hundredth of the scale of the higher le level layers. And so we start with what we had before, which is negative log likelihood as the class function, and then an even sampling distribution. And we uh, train the whole network now. And so now we can, just by doing that, you can get a huge jump in performance going to 0.42. And then what we do is during the training procedure, we then slowly morph the sampling distribution from an even sampling scheme to the true sampling scheme. So we're sort of slowly easing it, it, slowly easing it into the process of seeing more and more zeros. And so that it doesn't really forget about all the threes and fours that it learned about in, when we were uh, initially sampling them with a lot more, prob uh, a lot higher likelihood. And when you do this, um, you have another uh, jump in performance. Uh, similarly, we have we then uh, augment our cost function with uh, the mean squared error cost function. So we have both negative log li likelihood and mean squared error penalty, and we sort of shift the weight from negative log li likelihood toward mean squared error. And, uh, again, slowly through the pro uh, training process, we slowly morph uh, the cost function more and more towards uh, mean squared error. And so then now we've arrived at the original situation that we wanted to do, which is a good uh, criteria, a loss function that models the performance metric we want. So that has quadratic weighted uh, has a has a quadratic weighted penalty, and uh, we have uh, the sampling distribution that is representative of the true population. And so this is another leads to another uh, jump in performance. Um, and so you can see the the sort of progression we went through here. Uh, we went from you know, the first set of, uh, so, you know, this, we explored a lot more ideas than what's just shown here, but this is effectively the methodology that we learned uh, after experimenting with a lot of cheap, low-cost training nodes of, of, at low resolution. And so then you can just directly apply this, you know, stepwise stages of training, and you can apply this to the high resolution, and you can see that there's almost a parallel performance uh, uh, increase as you follow this training strategy. Of course, there's also a huge gap there just by going from low res to high res, and that's because you're actually learning the image features that are associated with the disease, which is you know trying to find these little dot bleeds and stuff in the in, in the eye. Um, so with that, I'll pass to Apar, who will talk about our computing and some more novel ideas we had. Thanks. Okay. So so what Jason described so far was essentially a conventional convolutional neural network. And uh, one of the issues, as Jason again mentioned, was that we have this whole uh, problem with the image size. You know, Images that we want to use for diagnosis are about 2K by 2K, but we actually train using images of size 2 to 4 by 2 to 4. 
and then also with 1K by 1K. So in a lot of our, a lot of our design decisions are based on essentially the computing constraints. And so what I'll describe in the next few slides would be the computing infrastructure that we've used for the experiments so far. And after that, I'll mainly talk about the new architecture that we came up with that uses uh, you know, all of the stuff mentioned so far, as well as some, some other sauce. And so that's the, that's the uh, pattern for the rest, of, for the remainder of the talk. So in terms of the, compu in terms of the computing setup, uh, what we have is we've used AWS extensively, partly because you know, we were supported by the Educate program, and so we had credits. And in particular, we've used the Elastic Compute Cloud Service. We've made use of all kinds of facilities with this service. You know, GPU nodes have been uh, used extensively. And the main reason is that for computer vision tasks where you want to apply the same operations at a lot of different places in the image, you need, high, you need a lot of parallel processing. And with GPUs, you can essentially get a 10x or 100x speed up. We've used VPC, uh, which is virtual private cluster. Uh, we use Star Cluster to set this up. We've used EBS optimized instances because, as I'll talk about next, we were very constrained on the bandwidth. If you wanted to, let's say, run 10 experiments, there was sort of no good way to do it. And you know, this is one architecture that we use. Also, to keep the costs down, we use something called spot nodes, which is essentially like nodes offered by Amazon at pretty cheap rates. I guess some of you already know about it. So and they can be taken away from you uh, at that discretion. So in terms of the nodes, we've used single GPU node for the smaller images, two to four by two to four images. And for the bigger images, which are 1K by 1K, which is still downsampled from the 2K by 2K images that you wanna use, we've used the multi-GPU nodes, which is G2.8X large. We've also used uh, storage options from Amazon, EBS, basically for all our training data, S3 for snapshotting, which I'll talk about next. In, term, uh, in terms of the software, we've used uh, Python for processing, data processing, pretty much for all our computing needs. And then specifically for training these uh, deep neural networks, we've used the library Torch, uh, which is one of the fastest libraries today. So. So here's our computing setup. What we have is we have data residing on a GP2 EBS volume, and uh, we simply use that data to, and we attach that to, let's say, a single or a multi-GPU node, and perform our experiments on that. So we have this setup, that, this sort of a setup that we use for developing our code, and then uh, if we want to run experiments while continuing development on, on the other side, on the right side of the slide, you can see we just create a replica of this data. So the thing is, we keep updating this data, you know, through the, through the, as the pro project progressed. And so snapshotting was great because, you know, we transfer bulk of the data initially, and then you only transfer little increments at a time as you make changes to your data set. And so that data, data two there, which is again a GP2 EBS, we use that for conducting all our experiments. And so specifically what, what we did was we set up a cluster using star cluster uh, on EC2. So there are a bunch of nodes there. And there would be a master node sitting in between with to which we hook up the data. And then uh, this master node NFS shares all the, dat with the, the data with all the connected nodes. So each of those nodes, model 1 through model 10, would be like a single or a multi-GPU node. And then all the data would be transferred. So. Uh, 
so yeah, all these nodes would also be spot nodes. We use a different fork of star cluster, which would help you get spot nodes across different availability zones if needed. Uh, the particular thing to note is, whoops, I think I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> Okay, so the particular thing to note is that uh, the, the connection between the data and the master node needs to be pretty strong. That is, you know, it needs to have a high bandwidth because really the data travels from the EBS to the master and then it's distributed uh, via the star network to the connected nodes. So that connection needs to be EBS optimized. So we use those sorts of things. All the nodes are spot nodes, obviously. And so, uh, you know, this sort of an architecture has a natural limit to, to limit to it because the EBS can only yield about 200 MBs a second. So if we want to, let's say, have more than 10 experiments in parallel, how do we go about that? So one way was to just maybe go from a GP2 to something like a provisioned IOPS SSD, which allows you to have much higher throughput. Uh, unfortunately, that's a really expensive uh, uh, solution. The other solution is to now use EFS. That's a relatively recent thing. We haven't uh, explored that much. But in our case, what we then do is we just simply use our uh, development data. We temporarily just halt the development, and we just replicate that sort of a cluster here. So that's basically the most number of models we need to train, about 20 models. And this helps us iterate quite fast, cheaply, because we're using uh, spot nodes. And we do a lot of these experiments on smaller images and then simply transfer the methodology over to bigger images. Uh, let's see. So specifically, we view it as, uh, the single GPU instances. These have four gigs of memory on the GPU. And so if your image is, let's say, of size 2 to 4 by 2 to 4, then you can fit a batch of about 128 images you know, you can process a batch of 120 images all at once through this neural network. And uh, so, the main, so the main problem in going from this size images, 2 to 4 by 2 to 4, which is heavily downsampled, to something like 1K by 1K, which is what, you know, which is at least what we really want to do, is that, you know, if you're increasing, let's say, by a factor of 4 along each dimension, if you're increasing the size effectively by 16, you can only fit eight or so images now on the GPU, right? And so then the obvious solution becomes that, okay, graduate onto nodes which have more GPUs. So we use multi-GPU nodes effectively having four GPUs, therefore 16 gigs of memory. And what we do is we use data parallelism. So just, you know, we just train the same model on four different nodes. And with accounting for some overhead, we can go from a batch size to about a batch size of 28 to 32, something of that sort. So this helps us make the training feasible because with a small batch size, the gradients are really just too noisy and the network does not train. So this is something that uh, that is useful. Lately, uh, Amazon has also come up with these P2 instances I hear. We haven't had a chance to explore them, but they actually offer like 16 GPUs uh, at the same instance. So that's something really cool, and you know we're looking forward to play with that. Okay, um, so with that, let me get into uh, what we call the hybrid architecture. So what Jason described so far was a methodology to run 
at most, let's say, 1K by 1K images through a neural network and get some sort of a prediction. So in this diagram on the right-hand side of the slide, what the, the network, the model which is labeled the main network, that is called, that is the model that Jason spoke about it so far. So what we have is we have the original image, which is 2K by 2K, which is on the lower left side of the slide. And then we downsample that to 1K by 1K. So we lose some features right there and then we run it through the main network. So in this setup though, in the hybrid architecture, what we've done is we've taken the original high resolution image and then tried to encode some more signals from the image into the final uh, prediction. And specifically what we try to do is that we try to do extra supervision. So in some sense, this is in contrast to what is to the general direction in which machine learning is going. So machine learning people, I mean, these days, machine learning folks try to go more and more towards unsupervised learning, whereas what we are trying to do here is go towards a more supervised approach. Specifically, what we want to do is, so we only have about tens of thousands of images, right? This is medical imaging. We don't have access to millions of images as in other uh, potential applications of deep learning. So we try to, we want to get the most out of an image. And so we try to encode the human knowledge. And the specific way we do that here is by marking lesions on the image and then telling the network that, hey, look at the, look at the probabilities of lesions in these specific tiles of the image and then merge that with the prediction of the other network, the main network, and do a collective prediction. So that's the general idea of the hybrid network. Specifically, what we're doing here is we've divided up the image into tiles, into 64 tiles. Now, each of these tiles is at full resolution, and we try to detect, and we predict using the lesion detector, the green network there, whether or not this, uh, this tile of the original image has any lesions. Okay? And so you could, there are like 10 different types of lesions that affect. Uh, the diagnosis of diabetic retinopathy. We've done this for one very specific lesion called hemorrhages, which I'll talk about next. And mainly the lesion detector now will output 64 probabilities, right, corresponding to each of those tiles. And that probability indicates the uh, chance of having a lesion in that particular tile. So the network on the right side sees the entire image at once, make a makes a collective prediction from that. And the network on the left-hand side is doing sort of this localized analysis and trying to generate, you know, in some sense, very interpretable features, which are then combined to make a prediction. Okay. So to train this sort of a lesion detector, uh, you know, we obviously need to mark data because unlike the original model, which just tells us what the grade of every image is. Now what we want to know is, effectively we want to know the grade of every tile on the image, right? So, and so what we did was we built an entire toolkit around this uh, uh, lesion detector. So we built basically a web viewer. And what this helps us do is to look at any image, apply lots of transformations, uh, color correction codes, and then we can draw boxes around different kinds of features. So this is a viewer we made. And then what you see in this image here is 
you know, these red boxes correspond to a particular type of lesion called hemorrhages. The yellow ones correspond to something called exudates. This and this, these are not uh, any lesions. These are just features that are present in every eye, the middle stuff and the optic disc. So we did this for several images, about 200 of them. And you know, as you can see, every image which is of a certain non-normal category can have many different lesions. So this image, you can see it has a lot of exudates and some hemorrhages on the left upper side. And then what we did was we used this. Uh, so for each of the lesions that we marked, we then uh, extracted a patch from the original image such that if we sample from anywhere in that patch, the lesion would be covered. So, you know, it's just a simple way of obtaining positive samples for our lesion detector. And then for the negative samples for our lesion detector, that is, slide, that is tiles that do not have any lesions, we simply took uh, all the class zero examples and randomly sampled from there, randomly sampled tiles from there. And so that helps you obtain the uh, negative class. So in sum, uh, we've only done this for a particular type of lesion hemorrhages. Moreover, we've only done this for 200 images, which is barely anything. Our training uh, data was 35,000 images, but this is really all we could do, you know, working on this uh, in school. And for the negatives, obviously, we have a lot of data. And we use pretty much the same methodology that Jason spoke about. We trained a neural network to predict, you know, positive or negative class. And the, and the final accuracy we get from this sort of a lesion detector is about 99% for negatives and 76% for positives. Now, keep in mind that this number 99% looks really good, and this 76% does not look as good. In fact, that 99% is a real problem because, you know, a lot of the tiles that we sample, even from diseased images, do not have lesions in every single tile. So, as a result of this, when you're uh, really sampling tiles from your images, most of the samples, like something like 100 or 1,000 is to one, are just negatives. They have no lesions. And so that 99% accuracy for negatives, actually the 1% that are misclassified creates a much bigger problem for us than the 24% for positives that are misclassified as negatives. So in any case, but you know, we were able to do this by marking just 200 images in all. So with that, uh, another, uh, you know, with that, we just, we just trained this whole architecture. And uh, there was some, like, we had to manipulate, uh, manipulate the sizes a little bit. But, uh, you know, I'll probably not discuss that here. But, you know, there was some adjustment that we needed to make around the sizes to make this work. And then we had this uh, fused network, which we just trained. And so with this entire approach of training this separate lesion detector, we basically get that extra data point of the, right here. So we were at about 0.79 without doing any of this stuff by just using the simple model that Jason described. And by essentially going through all this work of specifically guiding the network to look out for these lesions, we were able to get uh, to a score of about 0.82, a kappa of 0.82. Now, first of all, that that increase looks small for the amount of work that went in, 
uh, it, I mean, the thing is, you just need to scale this up now. We've done, we've marked only 200 images, keep that in mind, you know, there, there is, and we've also done it for a very specific kind of lesion, just hemorrhages. And so you could like, you know, this could potentially be replicated and you could obtain like much better accuracies. We've just, we just haven't tried to optimize this to that, to death. So, uh, yeah, so that's the, and I should mention that the main reason why we looked at hemorrhages was that we figured that our accuracies from the conventional architecture, conventional architecture that Jason described, were pretty good except for the onset of diabetic retinopathy. Now, onset is actually the critical point. Clinically, that's a very relevant stage. And in particular, at onset, it is really these hemorrhages which are important to factor in to your diagnosis. And so that was a specific reason why we wanted to let the network know effectively what these hemorrhages are. And uh, that was the reason for choosing those lesions. Um, in terms of training this architecture, you know, typically the way you go about uh, 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 training yourself in architecture is you do a forward prop, which means you provide your image and you run it through the two networks. And then you store all these intermediate values so that you can do something called backprop, which is just, you know, running the gradients through both these networks. Now, keep in mind, there are 64 of these tiles. Each one of them is running through an individual network. So effectively, like, this is just impossible for it to, to do on any GPU. Even with, a one, even with a batch size of one, you cannot do it on a single GPU. So what we've done so far is not train this jointly. Ideally, you would want to backprop all the way through the two networks, the lesion and the main, along with the fuse, obviously. But we haven't done that because uh, it's just computationally, it's just infeasible. And so right now we are looking into distributed training, which is a particularly attractive way of uh, you know jointly training. And even if we don't train the lesion detector jointly with the main, we can at least train the fuse and the main network together. So, so this is basically our most advanced model at this point. Uh, finally, there are like lots of different techniques that, you know, some of them we haven't tried, some of them uh, we've tried but with uh, less success. And there are yet others uh, that, you know, may not be particularly clinically relevant. So, for example, one very interesting set of techniques is the supervised unsupervised learning where you try to use all the unlabeled data you have. So, in our case, we could just pretend like the test cases are uh, unlabeled, is just unlabeled data. We don't use those, the labels corresponding to that data. So we could, we have techniques like pseudo labeling that we've considered using. We haven't actually gotten around to uh, getting that to work. Uh, distillation is a technique in which, so, and so this distillation is a technique in which instead of having uh, our targets as simply class one, class two, or class three, what we try to do is we say, make a diffuse prediction. So we try to say it is 0.2 class one, 0.6 class two, and let's say another 0.2 class three. So we are giving it a more diffused uh, prediction. And so distillation is a technique which is relevant to our problem because our classes, the classes that we're trying to predict 
are not just simply independent. They have this gradation that you, uh, a patient goes from zero to one to two to three to four. And so you can encode that knowledge in distillation. And what we found was you get the same results with distillation, just that you can actually train a lot faster. We have lots of other techniques, you know, RNNs, com recurrent networks combined with CNNs to, uh, to, for, for a model some called uh, attention CNNs. Uh, we also considered looking at both eyes simultaneously so that a uh, little chart on the right side, it shows the correlation between the grades of the left and the right eye. And so in this way, you could make a joint prediction for both the eyes together. And that is actually bound to uh, improve your score, but it's something that's, again, not relevant clinically because doctors, at least ophthalmologists that's we, that we've spoken to, they try to make predictions in, uh, like, you know, for one eye at a time, they avoid sort of using the correlation. And finally, ensembling is always an option to boost your scores. So I'll just try to quickly summarize uh, what we've uh, learned, you know, from this talk, from this project. So mainly we've uh, tried to come up with, I guess, a cheaper way of training. We are pretty broke students, so, you know, we are, a lot of our emphasis has been around trying to get by with least resources. So we've used part nodes, we've uh, tried to uh, develop a methodology for low-res images and scale it up to higher-level images. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something which we feel has to be important, you know, if you want to make this sort of a thing uh, practical. Another thing is that in, in a domain like medical imaging, you're always going to be short of data. So the hybrid architecture tries to sort of attack that from a different point of view, which says that, okay, if you don't have much data, one option obviously is to just go out and collect more data, label more images, but then you also have this option of taking your existing data and then providing more supervision. So we feel this is broadly a class of techniques that would be more relevant for data-hungry domains and medical imaging is definitely one of them. We are never gonna have a mil like millions of images for diabetic retinopathy, that's just impossible. So you know, this is one attractive option there. Uh, the final, I guess, takeaway about which uh, we haven't really spoken too much is the clinical importance. We feel that it's, you know, so the, so the way this problem was posed as a five-class problem with quadratic weighted kappa as the performance metric, that really comes from Kaggle because we were taking part in that competition. But then, you know, it started out as a class project. We went and participated in the Kaggle competition. And then from there on, we've been working to figure out, like, how can this technology really come into the hospitals? And that was the main reason to work with the doctors at Stanford. And so what we've learned is it's like the way this problem is posed as a five-class problem is not very relevant. What is really critical today is to distinguish when a pers uh, person goes from zero to one to two. So it really just becomes like a three-way classification problem. And uh, another problem in this, in this particular data set was that a lot of the fours, that is the worst conditions uh, images that we had were already uh, scarred with lasers. Now laser is a, is a type of treatment that people do if you're already in stage four, but that leads to very evident marks you know, on the image of the eye. And so our classifier is basically just picking up you know, those laser marks. And that's sort of like cheating because 
when a person comes in as a four, you know, you don't really, uh, you don't, you don't really have the laser marks a priori. And so that's something uh, we are trying to figure out, like how to attack that, get more forest. We're also looking at like other images so we can do joint uh, predictions. So we are looking at, sorry, other diseases. So for example, we've just started looking at glaucoma and we're thinking if we can sort of make like a collective prediction using not just different types of images, but using different types of imaging modalities as well. So there's something called OCD. Finally, we are looking at longitudinal analysis, but the data for that is just not available. So by longitudinal, I mean that uh, you know you can you want to study a person's images through time and figure out how he's deteriorating. It probably makes the task also easier for the classifier, but uh, the data for that is just we haven't been able to get our hands on that. So, okay. So with that, you know, we'd like to thank. Uh, AWS, they supported us, they were responsible for, uh, AWS Educate was responsible for, I guess, making this project happen in the classroom, and then after that, we've been supported by, through their research grants. Also want to uh, thank Professor Robert Chang, who's an ophthalmologist at Stanford. He's someone we've worked quite closely with, and uh, you know we're about to graduate, so he's the one who's gonna take this project forward there. And finally, Jeff Ullman and Andreas Pepke, uh, who are both professors in the CS department, and you know they've provided some really invaluable insights into the problem. Okay, thanks. <laughs>